Welcome to Keeping Up With Data. Keeping Up With Data is the podcast that keeps data enthusiasts up to speed with what is happening in the data world. We bring in the leading minds from the data industry to talk all things career, news, embarrassing stories, failures and successes. So something really important for us here at Precision Sourcing is mental health. It's something we've been focused on a lot over the last year or so. And we're lucky enough to have partnered with the Black Dog Institute. And we're going to be doing a lot of events with them this year. A lot of our events, money will be going towards them. And they're out there aiming to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. So if you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link in the bio on this podcast. And you'll be seeing a lot more information about Black Dog over the next year. So welcome once again to a very special episode of Keeping Up With Data with myself, Joel Robinstein. Me, Emily Noda. And today we are joined by Marek Ruchinski. And Marek, as always, we'll get you to introduce yourself, so we're not telling you who you are. Okay, okay. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here in person uh, for a change. <laughs> After, what, two years absence, right? Uh, so, hello, guys. My name is Marek Ruchinski. Um, I work for ATO uh, for the last four years. Uh, so I'm responsible for all the data analytics capabilities for ATO and also with broader responsibilities across the government. I sit on various things and committees as you do when you're part of the government. And um, prior to uh, ATO, uh, over 18, 19 years in consulting, yeah? Mostly with Accenture, bit of bit with KPMG, all in data and analytics and strategy and marketing and all those things, yeah? So I've, things, I've seen things evolve. You've seen things, yeah. I've seen things, yeah. <laughs> to be like a Blade, Blade Runner scene. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's <laughs> No why tears in the rain, please. <laughs> that's why we're so excited to have you on, Marit, because yeah. you are obviously someone who knows a lot about the industry, knows a lot about the data space. We can talk about um, the difference between consulting and obviously now working with government and sure. how that's changed. Um, we've got Emily asking people on the streets again questions um but we'll dive straight into it today and we'll get you to think back if that's all right Merrick, to the start yep, uh, yep where I it all began coffee. yeah okay good <laughs> um so obviously you mentioned this so what 25 years ago you get into the data industry like how did it all start from you was it data from day one or did you meander towards it early in your career um there was no really data industry 25 <laughs> years ago. Let's be brutal about that. Uh, I've actually started in marketing. Um, I liked the the marketing sort of ethos, which blended creativity with some strategy. Yeah. And when I was doing my my undergrad, it was very much you know either you're a creative marketer or you're an operational marketer. I sort of liked the more sort of strategic marketing. So I was like, okay, I was really confused. Um, <laughs> and I also liked marketing as a science, right? So marketing actually uh, has a lot of data in it, you know, in the context of understanding customer behavior, doing market research and sort of stuff. And there's a lot of statistics and data there. Um, and at the time, I think that was relatively undercooked. So I really wanted to involve myself in marketing as a more of a strategic function with the organization mm -hmm. and also as a function that was not just about the brand and not just about brand management or comms. It was actually something that could involve you know, hard data and fact-based decisions to, be, to give it credibility in the organizations. I think at the time, 25 years ago, marketing was very much a lightweight yeah. discipline, except in companies like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Coke, which are very much marketing-centric companies. Yeah? Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, and in others, it was just like, yeah, brand people, you know, <laughs> or advertising people. Exactly, yeah. Different world Ponytails. Ponytails, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, do you know what? I w- and I think this is something that you've said before, Emily. Some of the most successful people we see in the data industry are people who've started in marketing because you come from a storytelling, consumer-focused yeah. background. Would you say that that's always stuck with you and helped you? Definitely, because you have to be sort of customer-centric. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I think um, some of the marketing companies were the first ones to really embrace data at the center of their operations. So when you think about retailers, then when you think about some of the pure plays that really spread it up after the first dot-com boom bust era, yeah, um, all those companies were data-driven and marketing-driven, very customer-facing. So for them, using data to engage with the customer was their shtick, was the reason why they were successful, was the really the center of their differentiation vis-a-vis the competitors, yeah? So I think it was really exciting to see that to emerge yeah. Yeah, in the market because that was new, yeah? yeah? That was new, yeah, because they, they were really distancing themselves and the competitors didn't know what to do because they did not know how to counter-react because they did not have the skills, yeah? Yeah, you know? makes sense. Yeah. And so when did you pivot to a more data-centric role, shall we say? Yeah, I, th- I think that evolved during my consulting era. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> God, I make myself sound old. <laughs> I am old. Um, uh, prehistoric. Uh, the, <laughs> You're not um, that old, Barry. Come the, on. It was really just, you know, I, I sort of started doing the consulting very much in the strategic marketing, marketing space. Then I really started looking at retail and consumer sector because that was my history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then progressively was more and more data. Yeah. More and more projects that really use data as the as the real differentiator to what we did mm-hmm. with the clients. Yeah. And as a real lever to deliver value. Yeah. And then it just sort of, you know, really it created its own sort of little momentum. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're consulting back then versus yeah. now, you know, we yeah. consultancies are often first movers. Yeah. I'm sure they were some of the first movers into the data world as well. Um, but, but what's massively changed between now and then for you? Yeah, so I think, I think there's a, in summary, I think it's just a sheer sense of belief mm. yeah, in the space, in the potential it has to impact the, the PNL, the balance sheet, and the and 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 the and the customer and the client base of the of the clients, and I think you know there is there is a project that sticks in my mind. Yeah, as, as I think as we discussed before, you know it's been a long time ago, yeah. um, and we're working with uh, Hutchinson One Power in Hong Kong um, with their supermarket division, Park and Shop, and um, my client partner, my boss there was very convincing and actually allowed them to to actually um, give us their data. And we basically said, look, we're going to use your data from your cash registers, yeah? Give us like 12, actually 24 months worth of data from your cash registers. And we're going to do fantastic things with it. (laughs) (laughs) Change your world. But the the basic premise was that we're going to use their patterns of sales from the cash registers, which is, you know, at SKU level uh, for each of the transactions to understand the baskets, Mm -hmm. yeah? To understand what people buy, how they buy, where they buy, you know, pretty basic stuff yeah. right now, yeah? Uh, and that, and we're going to use it to do two things for them. Number one, we're going to allow them to cluster the stores to say, okay, these stores are shopped similarly. And then within each cluster, we're going to say, well, how much space you should give to each category based on how people shop that store, 
Yeah. yeah. So very much, you know, fact-based stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, a bit of black magic on the side in regards to mathematics and, and statistics, but we're able to do that. But the cool thing was, right, for me at least as a consultant, is you know, the client actually gave us a store to play with, right? Because they didn't believe the maths. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> they said, Yeah, it's just a bunch of numbers. Yeah. You know, consultants give show me graphs and yeah. curves and you know, like it's like, yeah, that's not real. So they said, okay, but you know, we've got you know, so we chose these two stores and as you know, Hong Kong is very densely populated. Yeah. So we found these two stores that were literally in the same suburb. They were very similar and actually a couple of blocks away. So yeah. we knew they were shopped the same. We knew they were very, very, very much, you know, alike. And we did a classic physical A-B analysis, nice. right? So we actually stripped the store. They rebuilt the store for me, like I told them. Oh, wow. To actually sort of relay the whole store, give exactly how much space you know to each of the categories so you had your whole neck on the line here yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then we did three month pilot right yeah. of you know how this store performs versus that store and what is the impact on the on the actual net profit right? Sure. because you know grocers are very much bottom line focused yeah so we ran it three um for three months and the store showed i think between 10 to 15 percent increase in net profit wow wow for a, for a, for a supermarket months. chain. Yeah, for only three months as well. And that's huge. For, that's yeah, huge, right? So it was, yeah. it was really ramping up, yeah? Um, so that created a sense of belief. Of course. Yeah. But there was something that brought me down, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> because then... Um, then the project was, you know, actually got a got a got a bit of, you know, reverb and was sure. actually quite famous because we could, you know, we saw this it was very real, and and I was coming back to Australia for my holidays, right? The guys here in Accent just said, oh, "Look, Marek, you know, good project. We'll get you in front of Woolworths, right? And uh, you can present the case study, right? And and show them what sh and, sh and show them show them what's what what it's all about. So they did. They arranged the presentation. The guys Woolworths were there, you know, twenty years ago. And and I showed him the charts. I showed him the photos of the <laughs> store, right? To say, look, this, this is real, not just made up crap by a consultant. Yeah. Um, and I said, yeah, Marek, that's interesting. But, you know, our store managers know better. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was must have been... That was pre-quantium, by the way. Yeah, pre-quantium, yeah, 100%. <laughs> now they know better, I think, themselves. <laughs> I think they do, yeah. Well, the amount of money they've invested in, in it now. But they lost, you know, the sad thing for me was they lost five years. Okay, exactly. This was five years before they even started thinking about Quantium, before they started thinking about loyalty, before they started really using data to drive the promotions. They're doing fantastic things now. But for me, you know, it really struck me how um, how conservative the market here is, yeah? How much they look to others to follow, but very rarely they are prepared to lead, yeah? And for me, that was actually quite disappointing. Because we do ourselves as a disfavor as a country, you know? 100%. Well, I can imagine the first five years of all this world was just people saying, we've always done it this way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're making money. We're making money. Our so, people know better. Exactly. But at the point, you know, especially when you think about a supermarket, right? When you're running hundreds of stores, human mind cannot comprehend the patterns, yeah? Like, I'm sorry, but it's beyond our brains, you yeah, know? 100%. We can remember seven things, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Beyond that, no more, right? So. And I, I, do you know what? I'd love to dig into the consulting world a bit more. I'm going to come to you first, Em, because we, I have, for the 12 years um, that I've been here, seen the consulting industry change a lot. And you were there, Marek, for a lot of the 2 a.m. nights, 3 a.m. nights, yeah. all that. But I saw Emily, maybe more so around the time you joined us five years ago, four years ago, consultancy started having to change their ways of working in terms of flexibility, in terms of hours, because they are a great place to 
build a career because you learn so many different things. Like, are you have you seen that as well, Em? Like in terms of like what the consultancies have done to competing in. Definitely, I think that it's and more and more prevalent now. Obviously, because we've had COVID for two years and everyone needs to work flexibly, and also no one really wants to be in consulting anymore unless they know that they've got that work life balance and they they will join for the variety and stuff. But it's a lot harder to convince, I suppose, if you didn't have that competing with industry or client or whatever. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and um, how did you find it, Marek, managing and, and hiring? Because for some people, you consulting. Know. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. I did <laughs> yeah. do it for you. Um, but we'll, we'll go even broader than that. But, um, but you know, it's, it's always, there's a certain type of person that just clicks with consulting straight away. Yeah. And then obviously, it hasn't necessarily always clicked with what people consider to be the general population of the data world because of the style of yeah. work. Yeah. How did you have to, I guess, manage against that? How did you change things over the years? To yeah, look, I, th- I think. I think that's true, um, and it continues to be a challenge in my current role as well. Mm. Yeah, because I think for me, the way that I treat my team right now is like an inter- internal cons- consulting company, basically. Yeah. yeah, to be honest, right? There's 800 people, so it's big enough, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you think you'd have enough of them. Um, and um, you know, in in the core consulting world, I think you need to start looking at really developing specializations, right? I think there's always a challenge in consulting world. Okay you need to be able to be client facing sure yeah you need to be able to communicate storytell convince think on your feet you know be in the room and react in the room right i think those skills are always precious yeah especially when you combine those skills with some level of technical know-how in analytics right because that really lends you a lot of credibility with the yeah. client because you can not only communicate but you can react yeah yeah and you can evolve your argument live yeah <clears throat> with some level of technical backup and content yeah? yeah so having those people you know and hiring those people or hiring people with the potential to develop in that space is always a priority yeah, yeah. Uh, but that is not to say that you know for me analytics is a team sport yeah and you need different spe- specialists yeah and you know there is room for you know what I call backroom people, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> because they like the backroom, and you need people to execute, yeah. and um, they, that's what they excel in. That's what that's their comfort zone, and that's where they feel they can be pushed pushed mentally, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I respect that, and and we had and we accommodated those guys, yeah, and gals, um, in the in the consulting world, you know, the key challenge for those guys is. You know, there's a philosophical question, is there a ceiling for them in regards to their sure, career? Sure, and that's the problem where you right? come up against a lot. Is yeah. there a ceiling? Like, will they be promoted to partner level? Yeah. And and to be brutally honest, it's very hard. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's very hard unless, you know, the, the organization is large enough to really support those expert career paths, yeah, sure. and some of them are evolving in that yeah, space, they're getting yeah, there, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Where where they where they protect, where they hot house and where they evolve that talent, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, at a certain point, you need to start bringing the numbers, and that's that's hard for those guys Very sometimes, hard. yeah. Yeah, the the, the challenging um, aspects of recruiting into consultancies, I think there's two areas we always struggle with the most. One is the what is known as the manager level, yeah which mm. is kind of that 140 to 160, 170 kind of salary, which in the market would be, you know, a mid-level data engineer or nudging on a senior engineer. Yeah. But they, they, they're now starting to be expected to manage a project team, deal with the client directly. And, and that's where that ceiling starts becoming a little bit more. Yeah, because for some, for some of those guys, you know, that's 
not what they like to do. It's not just mm, it's yeah. not just not their comfort zone. It's just they they're not interested in that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Right? It just doesn't doesn't really bother them. Yeah, they want to sit in front of the screen. They want to be challenged intellectually through hard, you know, mathematical or coding problems. Right? And really, that's what really talks to them. Yeah, yeah in a way. And um, you know, and I have deep deep respect for those guys. Yeah, um, a lot of those guys are actually on the spectrum as well. Yeah. So, and we are very supportive of that. Like in in the in the current, we've got a whole community where you know we really cherish and and protect you know yeah. those skills, because you know some of those individuals are just absolutely brilliant, right? But very narrowly exactly, focused. Yeah. yeah? In one area. And and that takes skill to number one recognize, and then number two protect and evolve. Yeah, because they're very fragile as well. Yeah. yeah. So it does require diff- different type of skills. It's harder in the consulting space, I find. I yeah? can imagine it would be. Yeah, because it's much more ruthless. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's yeah. much more. But up or can, out, right? Yeah, up or out, right? You understand why. You understand yeah. why. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question on consulting world before we move on to kind of the now and the ATO. Yeah. Um, we're in a boom market. In boom markets, often what we see is the small to mid independent consultancies doing really well and yep. then they start getting bought out yep. by all the big ones which we've seen happen now in Telefy Deloitte um, Cloud 10 with CyberCX recently like, how do you find that I guess works for the market because we lose a little bit of that individualism from the consultancies they get eaten up by the Deloitte's and the do you see that as a problem or, or, or a good thing or maybe both I think it's just a it is just a thing. Just a part of life, yeah. right? I, th- I think I think it's a, it's an evolutionary cycle, right? It's natural selection. It's, yeah. it's, it's very Darwinian, right? But that's that's what it is, right? It's very much exemplar of that. Um, I think it's good for the guys that get bought out because course, you know yeah. some of them want to move up, move up to larger plays, and they're probably hitting the ceiling in regards to what they can do yeah. in the current construct that they've created. Yeah, so it gives them a, a leg up to the next level of implementations, programs, and so forth. Yeah, um, you know it gives them financial rewards as well. So I think there is a there is there is that angle as well, and you know it broadens the the talent pool for the larger players right yeah. so you know and and you know from what i've seen it also brings in new skills sometimes right um that are potentially we're not there we're on the periphery and exactly. suddenly they just can be clicked in yeah um the process of clicking in is actually tricky yeah, yeah? Mm. because sometimes you know as you guys will know there are cultural clashes you know moving from a small gotcha. team to a large Behemoth, mm. yeah, um, <laughs> has its challenges, yeah, and some people do not click with the larger construct, yeah. right? Mm. Some people feel that they are just, you know, a cog in the machine. Exactly, they lose their identity, you know, and therefore don't last. I have yeah. a friend like that. Mm. It's quite funny, actually. Um, he all he worked for a small independent um, agency, like a digital agency, and he was saying, you know, I'm never going to have to bow down to the corporate overlord and I'm in my own, you know, kind of cool agency space. We all know each other, all this and that. Two years later, they got bought by KPMG. Um, and so he's, Is he still with him? Yeah, he's still there. He, 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 he's he, adjusted? Well, yeah, he he decided to get on the corporate train and go back on his words. So, um, yeah, but it's just, it, it's quite funny to see that. Um, right, so then now ATO. So, I've got so many questions about this and some we didn't prep before. So sorry, Marek, this often happens. Um, (laughs) No pressure. um, Emily, first of all, though, so you've obviously done some recruiting for Marek at the ATO and I think you spoke to, you know, hundreds of of candidates about it and they were all interested. 
why what is it about working somewhere like the ato that interests stated people from a recruiter perspective yeah, tell me, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then and then we'll kind of get into it with you Merrick. i think it's twofold no threefold so firstly merrick you're a person that everyone wants to work for it's like a common theme they know of you really? they've seen you yeah literally okay. it's true there's like a big draw card secondly is the scale like you've already mentioned 800 people like that's huge yeah. and it's very hard to match like we saw that when we were recruiting right we're like a lot of people didn't have the scale yeah so that's yeah. the second thing and the third thing is like you're giving back to people in Australia directly yeah. in some way. So technically taking away being the tax office. Well, but. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And within reason. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, like those three things for me, I'm like, well, why would you not? No, that makes sense. There, you know? And that leads me really well into my next Lovely. question, which you're probably going to hate, Mary. <laughs> yeah, why are you? Right. And I know it's quite existential, but people do talk highly of you. You've also landed a role that would be coveted by many other people in your position or your, yeah, your yeah. level yeah it is a great role so yeah. what is it about you that makes you that kind of leader that has been able to get into a role how like can that? i answer the question I, myself i know it's, it's a terrible question to you answer. should be answering that question i, I know right yeah. <laughs> maybe well, rephrase what would other people say about you or what would other people need to do to follow in your footsteps how about that uh how about, how about that yeah uh look i think um i don't know like i think I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Emily, as well. Oh, to be God. honest, um, <laughs> but but I, I I will go out on a limb. I think there is a there is an element of um, evangelism, yeah, mm -hmm. to what I do, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I hate that word, but it fits the, it fits the purpose of this of this conversation. Um, I do try to create a sense of belief and purpose around data and analytics for an organization i firmly believe it is an engine for growth it's an engine of for for differentiation it's an engine for efficiency as well for organizations and also in companies like ato it's an engine for risk minimization and avoidance as well right there is there is also a protection aspect of analytics and i think for me you know being able to create that message and promote that message with the business to create different energy and a demand pool for our services, mm -hmm. I think was was a bit of a game changer on how the team was perceived. Yeah, because when I arrived, you know, the, my mission was from the commissioner, Marek industrialized this this thing, right? You know, and um, and it was true. You know, they had lots of people doing, you know, as I said to you guys, doing fantastic things, but very artisanal, right? Yeah. You know, people crafting beautiful models in the back room, in the corner, you know, facing the wall, right? And then shyly giving them to the business saying, hey, try this, you know, it's like, that's cool, right? But it's not going to change the world, right? It's yeah. going to, it's going to, it's going to have a, a sort of a more of a creep effect. Yeah. So I think the, um, what I try to do is number one, just, you know, demystify the space to say, look, it's not magical. It's actually process. Mm -hmm. Once you, once you make, once, once you make it mechanical, you can pull it apart, reassemble it, change it. And so, because like cogs, wheels and all that stuff. Right. And I think, and to show and educate our guys, but also the business, right. Both sides need to know how the mechanism works. And I think the ability to do that probably was a bit different to what they were used before, right? Because people were very fuzzy in regards to really understanding at an operational level how analytics operational system works yeah. yeah and and i think maybe maybe that's where because you know i've been around for a while i was able to bring a level of clarity and purpose mm -hmm. to the mission yeah and therefore explain to everyone you know this is what you do this is what you do this is how you play together explain to the business say look here's what we can do for you guys here's the types of conversations that we need to have and by the way i need so much money because i need to make it better <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
and um, but there was a payback, right? And um, and I think you know when when COVID hit, you know we were ready. Yeah. You know we were ready to to respond. We were ready to build. We were ready to to do stuff that I don't think we would have done if things were not different. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned COVID quickly there. You said you were all already ready for COVID, which is great. Well, no, I was ready for COVID. No, no, but you, you, you know, you're, you're going. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't think you want to be ready uh, for something like no, that. No, no. Well, actually, I think maybe we do. Uh, maybe that, 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 that's the thing. That's now what, you do. <laughs> that's what government's there for, is to be ready for things that we can't handle ourselves. Um, so do you, how do you think it's helped change a lot of the government agencies' COVID? Because, you know, we all talk about the positives that have come from COVID. I'm sure that it's helped digitalize and, and push it forward slightly at the very least. Yeah, look, I, th I think the digitization space obviously has accelerated and that's, you know, that's axiomatic. Everybody knows that, mm -hmm. right? I think the other, the really positive thing that happened and, and, and there's, there's a clear parable, right? So if you think back about four or five years ago, we had a national health record, you know, initiative here in Australia. So that raised a lot of questions in regards to the, the community license and the community sense of belief in regards to government using data to actually support, you know, community outcomes. Um, I think the the initiatives that the government put in place and were able to implement during COVID showed the other side of that equation. Yeah, showed the fact that okay, there is actually positive aspects to bring data together to actually pulling it into into a into a mechanism that will respond to the community needs yeah. quickly and precisely, yeah. And I think for me, that was a watershed for the government and a watershed for the community. And I think you know the market research shows that the, you know, the trust levels have gone up. But you know the trust levels can erode very quickly as well, right? It's 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 a very fickle function, yeah, as we know. Um, but there is definitely an upswing. I think the government understands how valuable some of those data sets are mm -hmm. to actually help them make very real decisions, right? Like the the single touch payroll data set that we have, which collects data from all businesses in regards to the payroll, mm -hmm. that allowed us and the treasury and ABS to understand how the economy is going with a two week lag time, yeah? So, not many other countries in the world had that, yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> and when yeah. I and like I literally spoke to guys from MIT two weeks ago when I told them the story, they're actually freaking out, right? Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, because usually, you know, it takes takes governments about at least a quarter, if not two, to process all the economic mm. data right. and then figure out, yes, are we in recession or <laughs> not three months ago? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is far too late. It's far too late, yeah. right? Whereas we could tell, you know, okay, well. Based on the payroll movements, which we can cut whichever way we want, yep. yeah, because it's data. Um, you know, we were able to tell the Victorian government, well, here are the you know the suburbs or the industries or the businesses that we're seeing being affected, yeah, and therefore it allowed both the federal guys and the state guys much more precise response, yeah. Sure. And I think for me, that was quite quite a quantum leap in regards to the quality of service and the quality of response that the government is doing quite unique globally yeah. i think yeah that's exciting to hear yeah and um and really really you know it just makes makes the money work harder yeah yeah that makes sense like you're moving from a shotgun treatment to much more precise you know targeted approach yeah i'm very unfortunate uh imagery there but you know <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, you know, you know, where I'm going with that, right? I do. Yeah, I do. You know what? <laughs> that's really cool stuff, and and yeah. that's the kind of stuff that would be lovely for us as Joe Public to know more. You know, because yeah. all we hear about in the media is where government's going wrong, or yeah. you know, you know, what's well, much easier to sell negative stories about data than exactly. positive stories about data. Yeah, right? yeah, hundred percent. But yeah. that's the kind that's of a different stuff conversation where, about media. Right? Oh god, yeah, whole, yeah. We're not we're not going to get into <laughs> yeah, no. that. Don't worry. Um, but that's to me the kind of stories that we should be hearing because it is positive stories about what the government's doing that people would never know. And yeah. I'm, I'm already impressed. Like just to know that the, the whole point of government is to keep people feeling, you know, we're in good hands, we're safe. And, and that yeah. would be one that we'd be able to go, Hey, look, within two weeks, we know. Yeah. This was very real. Yeah. This was very real. I mean, all of us felt it in our pockets, right? Right. You know, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, JobKeeper was building six weeks guys. Right. Yeah, which is just That's insane crazy, as well. Yeah. And how have attitudes changed on working in government M because you know, a few years ago, if you'd have said, hey, come do this really cool role in data and government, people might be like, well, what are you on about? Have you seen attitudes change in the industry? Definitely, yeah. I think actually what you guys have been doing is like a bit of a spearhead to all of it, like or trickle down effect. Like they've seen that you can be doing really advanced stuff in data. It doesn't, like it obviously takes time for government, but it doesn't have to take like 10 years to do something. It can actually be like expedited if you've got the right people in place and stuff like that. So definitely, and it, it, I can see a lot of agencies are trying to like almost like tack on to that sort of movement as well definitely. now, which is good. And also understanding that those people in your positions across the agencies, which I know you're on the, mm. the chair, the board of, of all the different agencies for data, is having the right people in those roles who can sell upwards. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're not just a data person, you're a salesperson for yeah. the data. Well, you're a champion, right? Yeah. I think I think you're a you're a person that bridges the the theory with the with something that translating to translates it into something that is that strikes relevance with a strategic intent right exactly and i think that's that that translation is the key point of difference that i think the current leaders in data analytics need to have because otherwise they'll be just forever pigeonholed as you know support act exactly yeah. yeah you answer our questions yeah yeah yeah. we'll tell you what to do exactly and they're basically limited to being an order taker yeah, yeah. and you know and I, and I keep saying to our guys right we don't we are not order takers right mm. we are you know at least trusted advisors yeah and sometimes coaches right because our function is actually to elevate the business's ability to use data as well right mm. Because for me, you know, I don't want our guys to cut data and send reports and no. do simple stuff. You know, I think it's the what good looks like is the business is actually elevating their their landscape of data capabilities, and therefore the conversations get elevated as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah? And for me, that's really exciting because you know, data is going to be a, you know. It's going to be a common skill set for anyone, oh, right, gotcha. in the business, right, in ten years' time, right. It's yeah. like, as I said, it's going to be like Excel spreadsheets, right? Yeah, <laughs> everyone's going to be using them. Yeah. You can't, you can't kill them. You can't kill them. <laughs> Do you know what? Speaking of Excel, because um, so a lot of our stuff is still on Excel, and Simon, our MD, the other week said to me, and then Linda in our accounts team saying, "Oh, there are not any other things we can put this into other than Excel and all the extra." Linda was like, "To be honest, it's still just for what we need." It, 
just works fit for purpose right you know, yeah, so yeah. why move yeah. um right okay so let's just take a quick break from that let's go and see what the general public knows about data while we're we're getting into things so like on that is it yeah. the general public from new zealand this yeah. is oh. so we're very lucky that J- J- pop yeah properly. well emily <laughs> emily went home for eight weeks and we needed yeah. to record a whole bunch of new ones of these so it's actually emily's family answering these questions <laughs> um, which is pretty fun um today's question is what is a data journalist. So I think we've got four, maybe five people answering this one. How many do we think know what a data journalist is? No, I don't know. Not many. It's not going to be, is it, for no, that one? We had no. one yesterday. Get data journalist, that's, that's actually quite quite. Well, I, mean, I don't even know if I know what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Please explain, Emily. Well, let's, well, yeah, we can, well, let's find <laughs> let's out. Let's let my family let's, explain, shall we? Let's let the family explain first. All right, here we go. What is a data journalist? Uh, somebody that publicizes information that is presented by data analysts. Someone who collects and writes about data. Um, Somebody that writes up about data analysts and what they do and what's going on in the industry. Someone who writes about data futures. Okay, so we had four. Wow. Apart from them all sounding really bored. Yeah. <laughs> I had to really like incentivize them yeah, to do this. I bet. Well, the, the first one was okay. I felt, you know, we got a few like, mm's, but then it tailed off a bit, didn't it? I don't think any of them are correct. And I don't even know the answer to it, but I think they're just touching on an aspect of what the de- definition so, is. So Emily, what is a data journalist? Don't ask me that. I just said, you, I said to you, I don't know. <laughs> I don't Come know. on, you must know. I don't. I think it's probably more your side, Joel. I'll throw it oh, back God, to you. Okay. I, a data journalist for me is someone who uses data to tell a story. And when they write that story in an article format, they utilize the data, whether it be in graphs or in tables, to tell the story. So um, that would be like a written data journalist. So it's very visual, but also writing. So they, storyteller. Storyteller. But, and this is a weird one, you can also use data in a physical sense. You can tell a physical story. Like I've seen a data journalist before do like a data installation, mm. you know, like a conference. Science or, fair. Yeah, science fair where, <laughs> you know, it's like an actual physical. Well, like holograms. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's like, yeah. It's one of them ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's my definition. Yeah, storyteller. We're we just going to go with that storyteller. I think data? storyteller, and and I think for me, storytelling is still, still the aspect that is very very mission critical. Yeah, to this it comes up every podcast. Um, you know, it really separates the good from the great. Yeah, yeah, and and is the one that really allows the specialist teams to click and connect with the actual internal clients and consumers of data yeah definitely yeah without without that skill always a fail yeah i would agree with that 100 percent. and do you think it's a skill that every person in data needs no no no, no i don't think so i mean as i said you know it, it, it is a team sport mm-hmm. you've got specialists right everybody plays to their positions yeah um you know we've got a bunch of um, client account managers or CAMs as we call them. Mm-hmm. And they are the guys that, you know, that are the translators, yeah. Um, but then we've got a whole cadre of business analysts. And for yeah. me, the business analysts are the key storytellers. Sure. Yeah? That makes sense. Um, they are the ones who internalize the requirements, but also are able to communicate the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that that to and fro that I think, you know, is 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 quite critical. Yeah. And and look, and I think for me 
that path is one of the paths that we use to actually migrate business people into the data. It's exactly. like a bit of a vortex, yeah, you know, exactly. of talent for it's us. It's still yeah. happening in a way as well. Yeah. And us, I think uh, it's very natural. And it's um, a natural and entry point. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Always yeah. helps. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, we find that PMs, BAs, marketing people, they're the three kind of easiest transitions across. Um, I'm really keen to talk about retention because you manage a team of 800. Yeah. And we're in the toughest candidate market we've ever been in we've kind of talked a bit about attraction already yeah how have you been finding it from a general perspective keeping your team what kind of turnover do you have at the moment what kind, what kind, what kind of churn are you guys observing in the market right now uh the average data person now stays in a role for two years yeah so it used to be closer to three yeah so that means that uh, last quarter for example 11 percent of the data market moves roles in, in one months, quarter. In one quarter, yeah. So, so it's 40% in one year. 44% across the year, yeah. Wow. So we're running at about seven. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, that's really that's good. So per annum. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Percent or people? Percent. Okay, cool. Just checking. <laughs> um, okay, so in the grand scheme of things, still a fair few now. It's small in terms of percentage. It's, it's, it's definitely above average for the broader organization, yeah. but lower to what I'm used to oh, in gotcha. consulting, right? Because definitely, you know, 20, 25% was the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the typical stories that people are saying when they are moving on? It's oh, look, I think, I think it's definitely the, re the reward structures because, yeah. you know, especially, you know, as you guys know, there is the flex point after about five years, mm -hmm. six years, um, people are at the threshold, right? And I think somebody can swoop in, offer them a big chunk increase because they're basically placing a bet on them, yeah? Exactly. To say, well, okay, you're not worth it that now but, right? you will be. but i'll give you so much money you'll stay with me for three years and i'll get my roi out of you yeah, yeah that makes sense um so i think for me there is a clear pressure point there yeah because sort of you know you invested in those guys you've trained them and they like the job but then when something comes to you with a life-changing over well you'll be hard pressed to say no yeah. right it's hard right oh no, of course and, yeah. and i get it right um so i think you know i think there's 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 that challenge you know obviously now you know as we we're discussing at the beginning right lots of you guys in the office here yeah um you know we are finding it very difficult to bring people back into the office right and i think you know and i want to speak to my consulting you know colleagues it's the same thing with the consulting companies right basically they're very relaxed right they're allowing people to work from home so i think there's been definitely a behavioral shift mm -hmm. yeah in the last two years in expectations and it's funny because we had a very flexible work arrangement situation set up yeah uh which was seen as a differentiator mm -hmm. now not, not anymore not anymore <laughs> right not anymore it's yeah. just it's just the norm now right yeah. so and do you it's have a, a set yeah. structure that's the same for everyone is is that how it works or it's more flexible well, in regards to working from home yeah hybrid models and no it's it's individualized okay. and um and I've got the latitude to to make decisions as Great. well. Yeah. Okay. So I think you know we are very respectful of, you know, how people want to work. I think you know I'm happy for people to work from home. I've got no issues with that. But I'm very precise and upfront, saying, look, when we're having group sessions or training sessions, I expect you to be in the office. Yeah, sure. Because they don't work remotely very well. No, I agree with that yeah. as well. We we say that as well. Yeah, like I'm like you know. If you cannot accept that, then I don't think you're being respectful of 
this whole contract thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a two, two-way street, give and right? take again, give and take. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree with that. Yeah, and look, there's remote ro- roles for people who want to be fully remote, but yeah, you know, it's, it's but not, at the same time, you have to you come know. in, and and I think, and but I think that it's a bit of an existential issue because you know, and we and we had deep conversations around it. Number one, like how do you preserve culture in an exactly, organization? Yeah. If you all work from home, what is culture, mm. right? What's the cultural fabric? What are the cultural norms? How do you describe them? How do you, how do you create them? And most importantly, how do you imprint them on new hires, right? Like imagine graduates coming in, right? So we hire, you know, a couple of hundred graduates every year, right, across our organization, and they enter the organization and they're working from home. Yeah. How do they? What's what? What's the deal, right? How do they? relate to people how do they build the network how do they know how to relate yeah. how do they build political skills communication skills networking skills all those things are not the skills that you learn at university those are the skills that you pick up throughout your career sure how do you do that now do you think it, <laughs> do you think it's it's stunted some of so I, I'm gonna it has up. definitely stunted yeah so i think like ima- imagine if, you, if you're a graduate that started two years ago yeah are, they, are you struggling to get them to come in almost as well? Because so, they're so used to their bubble at home. And I think there's an element of that, but 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 I think they've missed out. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they've missed I, out because it's 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 you know that that interpersonal skills, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. You you can like you know thank God it's video conferencing, not just telephone conferencing, right? Right. You get, so you get a little bit. It's not <laughs> you, the same, you, at least you get some visual cues, right? Yeah. But the face is not the whole body, right? No. Um, so you don't get the full the full effect of the nonverbals, right? And um, you know, and the informal conversations that you have in the office, right? The ability to seek help. Yeah, you, you can jab at people and you can have chats, right? That's all cool. But you know, it's different. Yeah. yeah it's, and maybe it's okay for some people. I don't know. Sure. Maybe, maybe I'm showing my age here again. Yeah, maybe. You know? yeah, maybe. <laughs> talk, to, talk, uh, talk to Gen X. <laughs> do you know what? It's, it, it's, Sorry. It's those. Gen Z. I'm Gen X, for God's sake. <laughs> we are the forgotten generation. You are, aren't you? Yeah. You even forgot yourself. Um, do you, what about the, what, maybe those who had six months in the office and then they went off into COVID and I think they were really affected from what I saw as well because they were just starting to get going in and the then industry, they got cut off right? they got cut off but anyway we can't fix that um so obviously you're doing a lot of hiring as well um i would love to talk about interviewing um it's, it's an art there's you know different ways of doing it what's the worst interview experience that you've ever had it maybe it was you maybe you <laughs> stuffed one up you know <laughs> what should people avoid if they come in to interview with marrick uh waffling yeah. <laughs> mm. um or just um I guess trying to create a false impression. I think people see through that these days, right? Like because you know, unless you can substantiate your stories, you know, people will see through that. Not answering the question, yeah, which again comes back to waffling, yeah, um, for me. And also, I guess what really bugs me if someone comes through so prepared that they don't allow their personality to come through. Got you too scripted. Yeah. Because you're not just hiring the database of knowledge. <laughs> you're hiring a person, yeah? And I think the interview process needs to address what you know, but also who you are, yeah? yeah? Mm. And if I can't pick into who you are, then my subconscious will have questions, yeah? Yeah, makes sense. And then um, who, I think it's been a bit of promotion for this person, 
the best colleague that you've ever worked with and why? <laughs> um, You're going to be getting phone calls afterwards saying, I can't believe you didn't say me, Merrick. Nah, look, <laughs> um, look, I think I'm going to talk about, you know, I think there was one boss that I had. It was, it was Andrew Clark in, 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 um, in Accenture a um, long, long time ago. Yeah. And I think he, he, was, he was a guy who I really respected because he was very quick yeah mm. his brain was very quick yeah and i like that right because we could we could have really fast conversations yeah mm -hmm. and there was no you know no explanations needed it was just like you know points were made yeah and he got them he was responding very quickly and we just move on right and he had a very strategic headspace as yeah. well yeah so i think when we talked about you know client situations or strategies or how we're going to pitch stuff it was a very efficient process yeah nice. <laughs> and i like that yeah yeah i like that right because i think that was that was something that um that really sort of created a bit of a role model for me in regards to okay this is how you get things done yeah like quickly and and create generate and create very quick insights as well yeah uh it can work against me because then some of my uh so my 360 reviews saying uh, came came back to me saying Marek doesn't really like uh, he's very impatient with yeah. people that are, <laughs> they're a bit slow <laughs> oh, but you know what? If you've got that relationship with the right a lesson person, for me there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But you can't be like that with everyone, right? You were like that with him, and yeah, that's yeah, yeah, how yeah. it worked there. So yeah, as yeah, long yeah. as you weren't necessarily like that with everybody, then it, no, it exactly, works. exactly. I yeah. think I think you need to adjust your style, right? And I think that's that's another lesson there, right? That not not one style is going to be universal, right? In regards to how you relate. Yeah. Exactly. Merrick, unfortunately, moving right along. Yeah, no, <laughs> moving, moving right. Along. We've got to be careful, careful with you today. Um, we are coming to the end. We're nearly an hour, which flies by. Um, I wouldn't mind hitting a couple of key questions that we usually ask as well, if that's all right. First things first, um, books that you've read or maybe things that you've done for learning, what would you be able to suggest to people that they might want to read or... Yeah, um, I'm actually not a not a large reader of nonfiction books in this discipline, yeah? Um, I'm a news junkie. Okay. Yeah? So I subscribe, you know, to lots of lots of feeds, right? Which then, you know, in these days it's this these days it's wonderful, right? Because they just feed you stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Which is I think for me much more current than books. Yeah. I think books are not as current, unfortunately, right? Fair. Um but fiction wise, you know, I'm a big, big sort of um sci-fi sort of person since immemorial days. Any particular look, everything. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a very large library, but I think the um, the key thing that really resonates with this space is the whole sort of cyberpunk space, right? So Neil Stevenson, William Gibson, um, those guys are actually quite visionary, yeah? The stuff they've written 20, 30 years ago is it's very scary because uh, <laughs> you know? it's very real now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, if you read Snow Crash or Diamond Age or Neuromancer, you know, those novels, right, they're still sort of a bit far-fetched on the edges, but you can see so many elements that are becoming very central to our lives right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, some 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 companies, uh, Meta, uh, are betting their futures on some of those visions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I'll, you know, it's not for everyone, but for me, you know, having that genre and using that as a basically an escape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exposed me to 
many, many things earlier on, yeah, uh, that are very relevant in regards to what we're trying to build right now and the, the, you know, the, the sort of the environment that we're operating right now, yeah? I love that because everyone who's come on this podcast has always used a nonfiction book. Yeah. <laughs> in our office, I'd say the majority of readers in here are nonfiction. I don't read much nonfiction, so it's nice to hear from someone who also doesn't. I'm a fiction reader. I use reading as an escape like you, but it can still kind of come into yeah, real yeah, life yeah. as well. So um, yeah. oh, good suggestion. All right. Um, so we're pretty much there. Um, we always like to have, give the opportunity at the end of the podcast. Yeah, obviously, you're going to be doing some hiring, I'm sure. Um, why should people come and work for you? What's so great about working there? It's your two-minute sales pitch at the end, in case anyone's still listening. I'll give one minute to Emily. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, look, interesting work. Um, huge amounts of data. Uh, leading tool sets. Uh, very large use cases that run into hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Mm with direct impact on the community. <laughs> I love it. Anything to add, Emily? You've got a minute and a half left. <laughs> uh, well, everything I've already said, of obviously. Yes. So we'll, we'll take that into account. Um, I was, I was going to say before, but I, you guys kept t- chatting. Sorry, Emily. But no, I'm Sorry. Um, I feel like you come with a lot of relationships and you're very good at building relationships. So for someone who perhaps is maybe the back person in the room and wants to work on that, you'd be someone great to learn from. Oh, thank you. That's a good point there. Very there good. Go. All right, Mark. Well, look, we obviously haven't covered every question. We never do. No, that- fail. I, oh, no, it's not fail. No, no, no. It's impossible so to prepared as well. I know. So I'll give you like one last opportunity. Did we miss a story that you're like, I have to tell this story on the podcast today? Or did we hit enough that you're comfortable? I, I, like, I liked your question here when you had the funniest presentation where the audience didn't just get it. Boom, yeah. let's do it. Last question for yeah. today. So, uh, so, and it's a very short story, right? But a very simple one. Mm. Um, we're doing a project in Taiwan. And um, it was for, I think, 7-Eleven was a retail client. Mm. And we're doing a whole reinvention in regards to how we're going to help them grow. And it was a very ironic question because Taiwan and 7-Eleven has the highest penetration of convenience stores in the world, Hmm. more than Japan. And if you go to Japan, there's a convenience store in every corner. They're everywhere. (laughs) Taiwan is worse. Taiwan is worse. There's actually sometimes two 7-Elevens on two opposite corners of a cross intersection. So it's like, how do you grow that? Yeah. But anyway, that that's besides the point. You know, we came up with a strategy and I was presenting to the board. Yeah. And obviously I don't speak Mandarin. <laughs> so um so I was presenting for four hours yeah. and basically with 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 full translation. Yeah. So I was saying a couple of yeah. sentences and one of my colleagues was translating that um into into Mandarin. And and I just wasn't sure if they got it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think I think they've implemented a lot of the stuff that we recommended. Yeah. But as a presenter, it was very weird because I can you, imagine. You, you have no sense of connection with the audience. And for me, that was like, ooh. They lose your personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, obviously. Mm. I mean, maybe they get some of my you sure, know, yeah. body language, but obviously it's stuff that's coming out of my mouth. It's like, no. no. Maybe, <laughs> tra- maybe the translator was like dogging you as well. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to this bit. I should have a second translator. Yeah. Yeah. Translator. Yeah. Exactly. Don't listen to this bit. This is boring. You won't like this. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was just weird. 
It was just weird. Imagine. I've never had to do that. I don't yeah, think yeah, I ever yeah. will, but yeah. It was just very, 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 it really stuck with me, right? I was there for four hours presenting to the board. For four and, hours as and, well. Um, oh and I God. wasn't sure I was connecting. And as a presenter, that makes you feel very uncomfortable. I can imagine yeah. by hour two, you're just looking around <laughs> like, the room. Is it worth going for another two hours? <laughs> I know, yeah. Yeah, really. Well, on that God. bombshell, Merrick, um, thank you so much for coming on. I think there's loads in there that people can learn from from you. Um, so thank you again. No, thank you for having me, guys. No worries. Pleasure. In it's, person as well, which is uh, great. I was, they're always the best ones, the in-person yeah, ones, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I so, thought I'd um, myself here. Yeah. So um, <laughs> thank you, everyone. That's everything for today, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Whew.